And now, hear the word of God from 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. Rehoboam replied, give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? The older counselors replied, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today, and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your loyal subjects. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. What is your advice, he asked them. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to hear Rehoboam's decision, just as the king had ordered. But Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people, for he rejected the advice of the older counselors and followed the counsel of his younger advisors. He told the people, my father laid a heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. So the king paid no attention to the people. The turn of events was the will of the Lord, for it fulfilled the Lord's message to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. When all the people realized that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, Down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. So the people of Israel returned home. But Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. King Rehoboam sent Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, to restore order. But the people of Israel stoned him to death. When the news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. And to this day, the northern tribes of Israel have refused to be ruled by a descendant of David. When the people of Israel learned of Jeroboam's return from Egypt, They called an assembly and made him king over all of Israel. So only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the family of David. When Rehoboam arrived at Jerusalem, he mobilized the men of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 select troops to fight against the men of Israel and to restore the kingdom to himself. But God said to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not fight against your relatives, the Israelites. Go back home, for what has happened is my doing. So they obeyed the message of the Lord and went home, as the Lord had commanded. Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem and the whole country of Ephraim, and it became his capital. Later he went and built up the town of Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I am careful the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. 
When these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, is it too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem? Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He placed these calf idols in Bethel and in Dan at either end of his kingdom. But this became a great sin, for the people worshiped the idols, traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and ordained priests from the common people, those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a religious festival in Bethel, held on the 15th day of the eighth month, in imitation of the annual festival of shelters in Judah. There at Bethel, he himself offered sacrifices to the calves he had made, and he appointed priests for the pagan shrines he had made. So on the 15th day of the eighth month, a day that he himself had designated, Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar at Bethel. He instituted a religious festival for Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to be able to worship with all of you together this morning. Um, the practice of communion this morning is we're going to be practicing together, and I just want to say a quick The practice of communion has been a cornerstone of our worship as Christians since the Last Supper. It is a beautiful means of grace that was instituted by our Lord and commended by him for our good. So I love the fact that we get to come together to worship together, but also to partake in communion together. I love being able to partake in communion with all of you. And I believe it's essential to our practice of living and growing together as disciples of Jesus. So one of my favorite things is to come together with you to sing songs, to worship, but to also partake in communion together. This feast, and I say feast even though you're like, Lawrence, it's not much of a feast. We're taking a little bit of a cracker. You're like, I'm kind of hungry afterwards. I say feast because what we're feasting on is the very presence of Jesus. I say feast because we get to do it together as the body of Jesus I say feast because we are celebrating. And that's what feasts were for. Feasts were not just times to eat a lot of food, back in the Old Testament. Feasts were times of celebration, of joyous occasion, of acknowledging the, the goodness of God and what he's blessed us with. So I say feast because that's what we're doing during communion. Amen? So just a side note, in case this is your first time or second time, whatever time here, I love celebrating communion with you. Now, if this is your first time or second time or third time, or you're kind of newer here, and you're like, that passage, are you really going to preach on that? You're like, this is confusing. Most places I know won't typically touch the book of 1 Kings, or maybe like one or two messages about Elijah or Elisha. I know. It's not easy. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. We're, there's certain sermons, certain topics, certain texts that we're like, we kind of struggle with. But at Waypoint Church, we were very intentional. We want to preach through the whole Bible in 10 years, every book of the Bible. And we're also very intentional about going through whole books Old Testament, New Testament, kind of going back and forth. And so right now we're in the book of First and Second Kings. And I share that with you. We call these books history books, so I have a confession to make. I may have misled you, and so I have to backtrack something that I said before. 
I refer to these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, as history books. And the reason I've been doing that is, generally speaking, most scholarship divides this section of Scripture, these books, and they call it the history books of the Bible. They're called history books, and you see, the problem is, the reason I have to backtrack is because that's not exactly what they are. It's easy to read 1st and 2nd Kings and think of it as a history of Israel. That's how you, most people read this. They read through this, and they kind of read through it really quickly. They're like, this is boring. What king did this? And this king didn't do good. This king didn't do good. This king was born, and he died, and he was the son of this king, and he didn't do good. It's a common theme that you'll hear over and over again. Now, while they do tell the history of Israel, the story of Israel and the succession of kings, the author isn't writing just for history's sake. We know this because he quotes extensively from an outside source of books he calls the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, otherwise those the Annals of the Kings of Israel. And after serve each king's reign, he says you can go read more about this, those kings in this text. So, for example, 1 Kings 14.19 says, The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, and how he ruled, are written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel, or Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. 1 Kings 15.31 as for the other events of Nadab's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? 1 Kings 16, 14. As for the other events of Elah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? And so on. So clearly, historical records of the kings already existed and the readers had access to them. So... If a historical account of the kings isn't the primary purpose of this book, if there's already a chronicles, if there's already a history account of all those books, if there's already a history book, why in the world was 1 Kings, 2 Kings written? What's the purpose? What's the point? If it isn't a history book, then what is it? Now I want you to hear this. This is something that I believe, but not necessarily everybody might believe this, but I believe that the author of 1 and 2 Kings is more a theologian than he is a historian. He's writing a prophetic history of how the word of God found in the law and the prophets was the true Lord of Israel's history. The books are written from the perspective of someone sitting long after the exile of the northern tribes and the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon. This theological history explains why Israel and Judah are in exile. Its kings and people have resisted the word of God. They persisted in their rebellion leading all the way up to the exile. These books are written to explain to the people of the exile why they're in exile if they're the people of God. To show them the hope of redemption and the God of promises found throughout Scripture during a time they most needed to hear it. Just take a moment with me and imagine this. Psalm 137 says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. By the rivers of Babylon. Anybody know that song? Where we sat down. Anybody? And there we wept. Yeah, come on now. When we remembered Zion. <laughs> Over the, no, nobody, come on now. Yeah. Sing it. That's right. I love it. Who's it. Who sang that? Do you know? Yeah? <laughs> Stanley sang that. So I know it came from a CD, actually. I remember uh, the end of a secret track of a CD. I'm not going to name the CD because it's not the most appropriate CD. Back when the 90s. But that's where it came from. I think Bob Marley, actually, though, before that, saying that. Um, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. 
Now imagine a family sitting together by the rivers of Babylon. They're in exile. They're from Israel, but their, their nation, their city, their hope, their people, the place of God, everything was conquered and destroyed. And now they're living in exile, and they're sitting on the rivers of Babylon, this place where they were sent. Their kingdom was conquered, now they're exiles in this empire called Babylon. Now this was a common practice of the Babylonian empire. They would conquer tribes and city-states and nations, and after they would conquer them, they demand a tribute for the people who remain, but they send off majority of the promising young people, majority of the families, back to their home country so they can immerse themselves in that culture, immerse themselves in that language, and lose their national identity, lose their religion, so there was no longer a threat to the Babylonian Empire. This is a common practice. When the Babylonian Empire would come in and take over, let's just say, the nation of Isaacdom. Gotcha, buddy. And they'd leave one of their leaders, leave a token military force and say, all right, you guys continue to owe us tribute, but you're promising families, you're promising young people, we're going to send over, we're going to bring you into the city of Babylon, and you're going to live amongst us, but you can't believe your beliefs. You have to believe our beliefs. You can't practice your religion. You have to practice our religion. You have to become like us so that you are no longer a threat to the empire. So now you're just one of many in the empire. Common practice. It would lead to a losing of a culture, it would lead to a, a losing of national identity, it lead to a losing of religion. So here you are, you're picturing a family weeping by the rivers of Babylon because they're remembering their home. Now see yourself as a parent with these kids, trying to teach your children about the God of Israel and the kingdom that was theirs as you're weeping by the rivers of Babylon. You're teaching about the promises given to the people of God. One of your children looks up and say, but then where is God now? Why are we here not in Zion? Has God forsaken us? No. You teach them the story of Kings 1 and 2. And show that we have forsaken him, but he preserves and remnant. He still saves and one day he will restore his kingdom. Do you get it? Do you see the book of First and Second Kings is a book of hope for a weary heart that was far from home? The book of 1st and 2nd Kings was written to encourage those who have a hard time seeing God. It was teaching us to, to keep true to his word and commands and know that he will be faithful. It explains to the children weeping on the rivers of Babylon what happened to them. How did they get there? In our scripture that we read today, that we read today, we see the introduction to a watershed moment in the history of Israel. We get to the end of Solomon's reign. And in Solomon's reign, we see his incredible kind of slippage into more and more evil ways and practices. The rise of king basically portrays Solomon as another pharaoh. Slave labor, idol worship, stockpiling gold and wealth. He's painting him as a pharaoh. He's painting him not in a positive light, but at the same time, there is a little bit of a positive light spit in there because who is this writer? He's in exile, so he's still prideful of his nation. He's like, well, we used to be great. It wasn't good that we were great. He, Solomon wasn't good, but we were still kind of great. Do you guys know what I'm talking about, that kind of sentiment? I feel that way about America, right? I love America. I love this country. And I'm so thankful for what God has done through this country and has blessed my family and I and just being here. But there are things about it I'm like, oh, that's not good either. Am I right? And I'm telling this story. That's what this, these people are doing. They miss. He misses his nation. He misses his country. And he's telling, so he's kind of 
big picture, wow, look how glorious we were, but he messed up. He became like Pharaoh. He did all that was wrong. All that was wrong. Following his death, the nation takes a quick and rapid turn into two different and separate kingdoms. The rash arrogance of Jeroboam and the religious kind of efficiency and expediency of Jeroboam led to a divided kingdom devoid of God's covenantal blessings. The narrative now switches to a two-track format with occasional reform from the southern kingdom but persistent wickedness in the northern kingdom. The death of Solomon, as always that happens with the death of a king who had ruled powerfully for a long time, resulted in hopes kind of being raised amongst the people. Guys, Solomon as Pharaoh had slave labor. He's pushed, even though he was the wealthiest king by far, he pushed his people for more. He taxed and taxed relentlessly. He conscripted more and more people into the army and into labor. He wanted not just a temple for God. Remember how many years he spent in the temple? Seven years, right? But how many years did he spend building his own palace? Thirteen. He needed the best for himself. So he oppressed his people. But now, they have Rehoboam. Not much is known about him, but Rehoboam. By the way, Solomon had a bunch of wives. Just throwing that out there. He had a bunch of concubines. We only hear of one child that came out of Solomon in the Bible. We only hear about Rehoboam, which is kind of crazy. Because you have to think that there would be all these kids vying for, I want to be king, I want to be king, I want to be king. For some strange reason, Rehoboam stood out. Rehoboam must have been set apart. He was king. They gathered in Shechem to negotiate with the king, asking him to just lay off a little bit, step back from the taxes a little bit, to be, not oppress them as much, not conscript them into slave labor. We're already so wealthy. We have so much. Please, will you be nice to us? Please, Rehoboam, will you step back a little bit? But, Sol- but sadly, Rehoboam, you know, in my opinion, brought up in Solomon's court, probably bred with a sense of arrogance. Mind you, remember, like I said, no other child was mentioned. I think he was set apart from the very beginning. He was set apart as the one that was going to be king. So in my mind, a sense of arrogance placed upon him. Maybe entitlement. All things, I don't know if it's true, I'm just throwing it out there. So don't quote me, don't say, Lawrence said the Bible said this, whatever. I'm not sure, so throw it out there. But I believe that could be the case. And it's really, here he is, and he's, he's, he's this arrogant, set-apart child that grew up in the richest court during a peaceful time under an oppressive king. And these people ask him, what should we do? I think he makes a wise statement. He does something really wise at first. He says, give me three days. Guys, that's a very important thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like one of those guys that rushes into decisions way too quickly. Like somebody asks me to do something, yes. Hey, Lawrence, can we do this? Yeah, okay, sure. I will often have to be like, oh, what way? Yeah. There are people in the church who are my like, Lawrence, don't say yes, please, just stop. <laughs> yeah. I've learned to be like, well, let me, let, yes for me, but let me make sure. <laughs> I'm quick to say yes, but he made a very wise decision. He said, give me three days. And he makes another wise decision. He goes and talks to the counselors, his old counselors, old advisors. And he says, um, what should I do? And they give him advice. They say, hey, man, be a servant to them. I love the words. He says, be a servant to them. Has a great leader is a servant leader. Can I say that again? A great leader is a servant leader. 
one who wishes to serve in their leadership, not to be served. But then he goes to the young people. And in my mind, the young people, and I don't know this for sure, just, I'm gonna once again go out on a limb here, but I don't think it's too much of a limb, but it says that he grew up with these young people. Right? That was, that's what it said in the Bible. It said the text gave that he grew up. So they're his peers. Who do you think Rehoboam was hanging out with? Right? He's probably hanging out with other rich, spoiled people. Am I right? More than likely, Rehoboam's friends that he hangs out with are either lackeys who are just, yes, man, whatever you want, buddy, or the other rich, spoiled people, powerful, rich, spoiled people. And they say, whoa, whoa, I love this. Your little finger is bigger than Solomon's waist. They're puffing him up. They're puffing him up saying, you're more powerful. You're thicker, you're stronger, you're better, you're heavier. Lay it on him. Be more powerful than Solomon. Who does he listen to? The young people. Now mind you, it's not age. Age is not the thing that, age is not the thing that just because you're young doesn't mean you have bad advice. So please, I'm not being ageist. Is that a thing? I do not look down upon you because you're young. Timothy, I know you guys are all going to quote Timothy on me. I'm not doing that, okay? But let me just tell you one piece of advice to all of you. Seek counsel, that's good. But seek good counsel. Do you hear me very well? Seek good counsel. Seeking bad counsel is just as bad as not seeking any counsel at all. Seek good counsel. Seek godly people who've lived out faith, who've walked through it before, who, who knows you know is seeking after the will of God. Okay? If you're going to seek counsel, seek those people for counsel. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Listen to good counsel. So what brought about Rehoboam's rejection was the arrogance that had become such a part of Solomon's lifestyle, which he passed down to his son. He, Rehoboam literally said, well, okay, I can be more powerful than my dad. I can lay it on him. I can be, let me do this. And all of a sudden, he says, whips, I got scorpions. Becomes harsher, more oppressive, out of arrogance. So the people say, forget you. We don't need you. That's a huge statement because they were promised a Davidic line. They loved David. And that's what they wanted the king, but to go against David's line, it was a huge deal for the people. But he was so oppressive, so arrogant, they said, we cannot be your subjects any longer. And so the kingdom was divided, split. Guys, this is the kingdom of God. These are the people of God. This is a nation that was supposed to bless all the other nations. This is a nation that carried the ark. This is a nation that had the presence of God. How could this be? Later, Jeroboam is chosen president, not president, I said president, chosen king of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam, you would think, because you're chosen, Jeroboam would be a good, smart leader, which I think he was. I think he was very smart, just not righteous. I think he was very smart, but he didn't care about the will of God. I think he chose his intelligent political maneuverings over doing the right thing. Because what did he do? He thought to himself, okay, I have the northern kingdom, but the temple, the place where we worship God, is in Jerusalem. So all my people have to go to Jerusalem. They all have to go to Judah. And when they go, well, they're just going to leave me. They're going to say Judah, Judah is the place to be. They, must, they have the temple. They have the holy presence of God. So what does he do? He's like, well, I can't have that happen. 
All right, here's what I'll do. Golden calves, which I've never understood why golden calves. You know, I mean, like, why, why cows? They're not that majestic of animals. I'm just being serious about that. You know, I mean, I think bulls are kind of majestic, but they said calves. You know, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just kidding. No, what it was, was it was pagan religion of the time. It was religion of the Egyptian and the Babylonian and the gods of that era. It was religion that basically says, follow the religions of the culture and the people around you because they worship a different way. It was giving in to the culture and the religion for his political expediency. So he created holy places to worship. He created this place to say, here's where we're going to now make the temple. Here's now where we are going to worship God. Here's where now we're going to offer sacrifices. Committing such idolatry. Out of insecurity of losing his kingdom, he committed such heresy. You see, it was the, the arrogance of Rehoboam, the insecurity of Jeroboam. And it was the sin of the people who led it to a divided kingdom. And it was the sin of the kings that followed, and you'll hear it over and over again as we continue in our series, that led to the eventual conquering of the nations, a destruction of Jerusalem, and a time in the exile. Now let's go back to that family on the rivers of Babylon. What's the message that you want your children to know and remember from the story of how the kingdom was divided? There's little tidbits that we glean, you know, have to seek good counsel, do the right thing, but I would say there's two important messages that if I was the father in Babylon with my children, and I'm saying, guys, we had this kingdom, but Solomon sinned, and then his children sinned, and he made these decisions, here's what happens, that number one, sin and then turning away from God has devastating results. Sin and the turning away from God has devastating results. And number two, God is still committed to us and pursues us. Sin has devastating results. Let's look at the kings we've seen so far. We have Saul, David, Solomon. Then we have the divided kingdom of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Saul went against God and committed sin. If you guys remember, he conducted sacrifice on his own and didn't obey God's word when he was afraid of losing his men. He consulted a witch when he was afraid of losing the battle. He lost his kingship. He lost the line. Devastating results. David committed heinous sin during his reign. Now, mind you, this is a man after God's own heart, right? Sin shouldn't have devastating results after him. He asked for forgiveness, didn't he? He shouldn't have devastating results. Sin still had devastating results. His family fought and people died. Sin has devastating results. Solomon thought himself to be Pharaoh. He committed idolatry, turned away from God, and his sin led to a divided kingdom, to enslavement of his own people. Rehoboam and Jeroboam's sin led to further division of the country and a gradual decay into where it ended up in this whole nation being conquered and its people exiled. The effects of sin are evident, and the author was trying to teach his readers this important message that it's sin that led us here, and sin has devastating results. And honestly, guys, we don't have to try very hard to see the effects of sin in this own world, do we? And in our own lives? We can look and come to the realization that this world, while incredible, is broken because of sin. We see the effects of sin, don't we? 
We feel the effects of sin. We see genocide and shootings, theft and abuse. And we say there's something wrong. We see the beautiful nature. We see, we see the world in incredible ways. We see the Grand Canyon. We see, we see the mountain ranges. We see the ocean. We think, this is so beautiful. It's so right. We even see human beings loving each other and showing the image of God to each other. We're like, this is beautiful. This is so right. Every once in a while, Gina sends me text messages. And these text messages, she sends me clips of like feel-good stories that we both like end up crying, watching. You know, it's like this little, this, this guy who was 38 years old, he, he lost his hearing at two, and all of a sudden he got his hearing back, and he heard all his family speaking for the first time, and everybody's crying, and he's like laughing, and, and, and you hear for the first time, me and you're like, ah. All these other stories, and we see the image of God, we see goodness, we see beauty, and we think, yes, that's what it's supposed to be like, but then we don't have to look very much further to the next article, to the next link, to the next click, to see how broken this world is. We know there's something wrong. And the answer I give you is that it's the effects of sin in this world. It's the effects of sin in this world. Sin is real, and it affects us. And the author of our text this morning wants to make sure that the readers knew that sin was real, and that was what happened. That's why the kingdom that they longed for was gone, but hope was coming. While the writer of the Kings wanted people to know that sin had great consequences, he wanted his readers to know that God is so faithful and he's committed to keeping his promises more than we deserve. And all throughout the stories of the kings of Israel, one common thread remained. God still preserves his kingdom and his promises to Abraham and David. Even in exile, God is going to restore his kingdom in a way that is better than anything Solomon or David ever did. He promises to do this for the Messiah. The Messiah that will come one day and restore and renew. The Messiah that will come one day and answer the problem of sin and bring forth a kingdom without compare that will bless all the nations. The message of God's relentless love for his people will be the rallying call of this kingdom and this nation. You see, the consequences of sin are great. But the solution, the answer, is God's pursuing love that entered this earth in the form of Jesus Christ, who is the answer to our sin problem. Once again, back on that river in Babylon, the child asks, the adults ask themselves, maybe you're asking yourself right now, does God really love us? You're on the shores of Babylon, you're exiled, your nation is gone. Your kings have failed over and over again, and you ask that question, your kids ask that question, does he really love us? My people, Jesus tells a story. We often call this story the story of the prodigal son. I like to call it the story of the prodigal father. Prodigal meaning lavish, expansive. You know the story, right? The youngest son goes to his father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. Basically saying, Dad, I'd rather you be dead. Let me just get the money from you. The father gives him the money. Son goes off and squanders the wealth so quickly on stupid, stupid things of this world. He realizes after it's all gone that he has nothing. He's destitute. He's desperate. 
He finds himself so hungry that he's, he's willing to eat the food that the pigs are given. And while he's in this desperate and destitute state, he realizes that I have a father who treats his workers so much better than I'm being treated. Maybe I can just go be one of his workers. What I do remember about my father is that he was so good to everyone. Maybe even me, he can treat like a, a worker again. I don't deserve to be called a son, but maybe like a worker again. So he walks back, practices his apology speech, ready to, to, to ask for forgiveness when all of a sudden he sees his father racing to him, hiking up his robes, just booking it, running into him, and he sees his father coming. He, he bows his head, starts his apology, but before he even gets a word out, the father just wraps him up, grabs him, and his massive bear hug. This massive hug that squeezes the breath out of him. He can't even say a word. He's just wrapped up in this massive hug. He's kissed all over the face. He's just loved radically. He's been sought after. He's been searched for. My son Hudson asked me the other day if I was going to be with him forever. He said, Appa, are you going to be with me forever? And I told him, Hudson, I'm going to love you forever. Forever and forever. But one day, you're probably going to start a family. And you're probably not going to want me around. And you're probably going to leave me. And that's okay. And he said, no, no, I'm never going to get married. <laughs> he says, I want to stay with you and Umma forever. Umma meaning Appa and Dad. That's what Umma is. It's mom and Dad. Uh, umma, Appa, that's what Mom and Dad. Okay, in case, I don't know why. So I had to explain that. He said, I'm not going to be married. I'm going to be with you and mom and dad forever. And I said, okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Me, in my imperfect, selfish self, I love and adore my son so much. How much more does the father truly love you? How much more, I'm going to say this again, does the Father love you? How much more does the Father love you? So there they are by the rivers of Babylon. And with tears in the Father's eyes, he looks down upon his child and says, does God really love us? Yes. He loves us so much that he gave everything for us. He promised us a new creation. He promised us a place where tears are wiped away, where all is wrong will be made right. But more importantly, like even right now, he promises to be with us. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're at the rivers of Babylon right now and you're weeping over what you lost. Remember that God is committed to you. He preserves you. He pursues you. He truly loves you. Let's pray. God, as we, as we hear the story of kings, that's not just a history lesson. You're teaching us so much more you're teaching us why the kingdom fell, but you're teaching us the devastating results of sin, but you're showing us the incredible results of love 
and perseverance and pursuit. So that we could ask the question, does the Father truly love us? We can say, yes, he does. So we thank you. As we partake in communion today, may we remember your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as, as we come to the Lord's table, to reflect on the Lord's table, to be invited to the Lord's table this morning, just reminded as, as we're listening, as we're, we're reflecting on this divided kingdom, we're, we're literally, we're, we're talking about, we're hearing this story of, of God's kingdom breaking. And it's bleak. And it's challenging. They're, they're headed toward exile. Things, things are going to continue to get worse before they get better. They're even, in this story, renouncing what, what, what good is the, the son of David? What good is the, the promise that's being made through the Davidic dynasty? And yet here this morning, we're going to come to the throne, we're going to come to the table of the, the, the son of David, King Jesus. And we see, we see what God does through breaking things through sacrifice, how he actually brings things back together. And so church, communion, communion is grace to us. It's a necessary reminder of the very real sacrifice that Jesus made that brings us into fellowship with our God. Communion teaches us that Jesus came to fulfill for us all obedience to the law, even to his death on the cross, where his life was broken, his body broken, but by his wounds, we are healed. Through his sacrifice, we are, we are made whole. We're being made new. That in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. That you are accepted by God in Christ Jesus. That's what this meal reminds us of. Now at Waypoint, we believe this is a, this is a family meal. This is for those who profess Jesus uh, his, his death and his resurrection is for those who desire to follow him their whole lives. We receive the bread and the cup as a sign of the relationship that we enjoy and the fellowship that's been promised to us. And so our participation in this meal is an act of worship as we remember and confess Christ crucified and Christ risen until he comes. And so in the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto eternal life. This bread represents his body broken for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And in the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear much fruit. This cup is the new covenant. And in Christ's blood, there's freedom, there's joy. At this time, I'm going to invite up our, our service to come forward uh, to, to serve this meal. And for those new to Waypoint, we practice communion by calling people to come forward to receive the elements. We participate by receiving what God has done for us. Now, for, for health reasons or any other, you're unable to, to come forward this morning. We, we also have stations set up 
around the room for you to, to enjoy, to participate in, uh, as well as we have gluten-free options uh, designated at those stations, as well as uh, what is being offered up front this morning. Our servers will be standing uh, in, in pairs in front of each section of chairs. We invite you to, to come forward in, in, uh, to, to those sections. Church, you have been invited to the king's table, to the the sacrificial work of his son, Jesus. And so at this time, we invite you to come forward and to receive what Jesus has done for you. Come and eat, church.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you with humble hearts, grateful for the work that you have done for us. God, that you bring salvation in your son, in the son of David, there is salvation, there is hope. God, that you are mending all things. God, you're even making it it better. God, you make us better. What a wonderful savior we have. God, as we lift our our heads up, as we lift our eyes up, as we set our eyes on the hope that we have that's been secured for us, God, I pray that we would would rejoice this picture of being on on the side of the river of Babylon where there's, there's pain, there's tears, there's sorrow. But God, being on this side of the cross and knowing what you can do, what you have done, God, even through the tears, there's joy, there's triumph. God, I pray that we would remember that, that we would walk in this, this newness of life that you have given us, that we are accepted by you, God. We praise your name. We lift you high, God. Worthy is your name forever and ever. We pray. We praise you, God. We lift your name up as we continue to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.